This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2118, Garland's Baptism by Fire, we advise you to do so before listening. Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room, the official Law & Order SVU podcast. I am your host, Anthony Roman, and this is episode 2118, Garland's Baptism by Fire. And on the program, we have Christian Garland himself, Damore Barnes, and we dig into how he approached this very challenging episode. After that, writers Cheryl L. Davis and Mishan Clockley make their first appearance on The Squad Room and tell us all about how and why they wrote this compelling story. And finally, longtime SVU casting directors Jonathan Strauss and Philip Huffman walk us through the audition process. This is all happening right here on The Squad Room, which is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. We're here on The Squad Room with Jamore Barnes, Chief Garland. Welcome back. Good to see you. It's good to be back. Yeah, man. Last time I saw you was episode eight, Machine Elves, and, Here we and are. this is your episode. This is this a big is, one. To say it's mine, all mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, not exactly. <laughs> so, did you, did you know very early on that you were going to carry an episode like this? Was that told to you when you joined the crew? Yeah, I guess if I think back to some of the initial conversation that I had with Warren and Julie, that was definitely a point on the horizon that was marked what it would contain and what we would navigate in order to get there, that was unclear as well. Right. Yeah. So when you get a script like this and you realize that your character has such a big part, is there anything different that you have to do preparation-wise as an actor? Or No. In fact, I think if I was or found myself doing something different, I'd have to really ask myself a question or a few questions as an artist and an actor as to why my preparation would be different. I could see how it could be, yeah, but it really shouldn't be, and it really wasn't. I think the only thing that changes is the quantity of material and context and dimension that I have to hold and be mindful of. Just being in a scene and always being cognizant of, okay, what's behind me and what's coming before me? And then what is it that we want to convey in this scene? Which is which is the same, whether uh, you know your role is a little smaller or if it's really significant. When you're in a supporting role, as opposed to maybe driving the story, you approach it completely the same, even though you know you're more of the focal point. Your, oh, your process doesn't change. Yeah, yeah. So the process doesn't change, but to be more specific, the approach for me does change. Uh, I'm thinking in terms of, um, and I'm speaking exclusive of myself, I'm thinking in terms of what's in best service to the story, what's in best service to the scene, and as far as I can determine or ascertain what is the objective of the producers and the writers in writing this scene or writing the lines as they are. So as a supporting actor, I'm going into a scene thinking, say, for instance, it's myself and Mariska. Okay, so what's happening for Mariska's character? What's needed in order to have this scene be a home run? And so I'm thinking much more from a, a little more from a service standpoint, uh, setting her up. Right. You know, so that she can shine. You know, even in just saying that, I realize, you know, I think a lot of the other actors on this show, they think the same way because I feel like that's what they've been doing for me throughout yeah, this whole episode. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's been fantastic. In the beginning of this episode, you're having this very pleasant dinner party. No phones allowed, which was nice. Yeah. 
And obviously that becomes ruined by events that unfold and information that Carisi and Rollins have. And I was thinking that it was fun to see SVU in this pleasant place and Benson you know, having a good time maybe with Edgar. And then, boom, we're back to reality, right? Yeah, so yeah. what did you think of that teaser when you first read it? I loved it. And the reason I loved it was because I saw it as a very ripe stage and context to see Garland in a yeah. different environment, in a different light. You know, when I think of his home and, and when I read the scene, it struck me as this is the inner sanctum. This is kind of behind the curtain, yeah. as it were. If we were to say uh, yeah. Garland is the deputy chief of police behind the curtain of Oz, this is where his heart is. This is where he's at rest. This is, and in this context, happens to be where the things that he loves, all the things that he loves, friends, family, his home, his wife, his daughter, it's all in this house at this moment in this yeah. time. So it's a really great launch pad also for the show for where they'll ultimately go, which will be very different than where they begin. Right. For me and the fans, it is nice when we get to see the gang or part of the gang together having a nice time. You know, I mean, it never seems to last very long yeah, because yeah. it's the nature of the show. But it, it was great to open that way and to see kind of your world, as you're saying. And I was told that you and Warren had extensive conversations about Lamai and um, just about that character and, and who she should be. And Is that correct? Yeah, we did. And there is a clarity and a weight and a presence that Garland has. And I know Warren and I were keenly aware of the importance of casting someone who could stand to him, who, as you see them side by side, you say, ah, yes, okay, yeah, 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 I get her. I get them. And so that was really important. You know, one of the other things that we talked about and I remember Warren really put forth was maybe exploring the notion that she is in some ways, maybe even in certain ways stronger than him and is perhaps even a bit lighter, rolls a bit lighter than he does, sort of as a nice counterpoint to him yeah. and where he may naturally live. Although uh, my hope is, is that people will will see that he's actually not only much more lighthearted than they've experienced him thus far, but that he's also very big-hearted and tender-heartedly at that. So when this information comes to Chief Garland, you're obviously very upset and confused, but you seem to react in a way that I think we would hope we would all react in, that you put truth and justice and your job first. You really seem to be like, you know, I believe these people and we have to do what we need to do, despite the fact that this is my mentor, friend, you know, someone who I'm very close to. Mm -hmm. Was that challenging as an actor? Because obviously there's a lot of layers to your character in those moments when you're conflicted, but not. Super challenging because uh, there's so many different pieces. Like I was saying, with the home, at the Garland home, at the Brownstone, there's so many threads of Garland's world that collided there. So many pieces that met there in that inner sanctum, in that place of retreat. It was his family, his wife, his daughter who was involved there, his friends, Reverend Chase, Reverend Laura. Uh, then also from a work standpoint, that space was also present there in Olivia. And then the front door opens and there's Carisi and Rollins, you yeah. know, so it's all happening right there. And so for me, that presented some challenges. I think champagne challenges as an actor, like those are the challenges that you want where you're holding half a dozen to a dozen different things at one time. 
and having to navigate uh, in an integrous way and in the shoes of your character as the character has then at that point been formed to continue to step forward in and through that holding all of those pieces. And then on top of that, playing a character who is also doing that as a husband, dad, father, friend, co-worker, dealing with trust, betrayal, betrayal. Uh, love, uh, new friendships, and the depth of old friendships, navigating all of that. It was a really big challenge. And the first scene that we did on this episode was with Mariska. And I remember sitting down with her very briefly as we were rehearsing the scene. And with Norberto Barba, our executive producer, also yeah, uh, doubling as director and, and fantastically so. Uh, really enjoyed working with him. And just sitting down and just really beginning to get a sense or a grasp of, okay, this is the scene where, you know, I said to them, I feel like this scene is really a confession. It's many things, but it's also a confession. Like, hey, after everyone left, the thought ran through my mind to, yeah. to call Dell, you yeah. know, and she's like, okay, you were going to call him. And it was like, yeah, because, you know, I don't believe, I don't believe anything, you know, and the scene plays out. It's me as chief talking to, in this instance, uh, a subordinate who's also a blossoming friendship, but I'm being vulnerable with her and trusting her. I'm taking this leap. And really that's born out of Garland's integrity, uh, as you kind of pointed to. You know, kind of, hey, this is what happened behind closed doors. I don't have to tell you this, but I'm telling you this and I'm going to recuse myself. And he kind of, <laughs> kind of drops his head, and he goes to exit. He's done what he needs to do, as difficult as it was. And she says, "Hey, the community trusts you. Reverend Chase trusts you." And what she doesn't say, but then I think what Garland catches in that scene is Benson saying, "And I trust you. Yeah, you know, we need you." Yeah. And so I think that's a really special scene and a really special moment earlier on as it sets the stage for all of the various pieces of of the turmoil that Garland is then going to be heading into the fire, you yeah, know, yeah. and the things that he's going to have to navigate along the way. This is not a high action episode. This is a lot of deep, like what's going on in Garland's head and what's happening with the Reverend. And I just was wondering how you were able to get there as an actor. And It used to be in my work that I would go to other places. I would go to betrayal in my old life or places of love or even just thinking specifically of, you know, sort of the really difficult and painful pressure points in my own life. And I actually no longer do that. What I found was, uh, this is just, you know, obviously just my opinion, but when we experience those hurts and pains and betrayals and we're hurt or we're wounded, and as an artist, as a creative, I believe it's tempting to go to those places, to draw on those places. And I know it can be extraordinarily effective. When I go to those places, what I end up doing is I end up aggravating those places. I end up re-injuring those places, reliving those pains and woundings. And then invariably, the director yells, cut, and I'm bleeding and I walk away and I go back into the world. And while the performance may be a gift for the world, (laughs) the resulting (laughs) carnage of of what now is demoral stirred up in, in a tizzy, that's not a gift to the world. And so right. I know it's not the answer you expected. No, but, no. I, there but, is no right answer. Well, no, it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's tremendously in depth. But, you know, that's just <laughs> this is where I live. That's where I, that's where I like to be. So now I really tap into a deep sense of empathy. And so what I've endeavored to do is really to be present in the scene, to really listen, to really watch. 
to really just try to sense and feel based on the story, based on what I know of my character, based on what I know of the character in front of me, and to respond. So if I'm angry, it's the indignance that is present within that scene, right. within that moment. Not unlike when you know we're flipping through television and we land on a news station and there's a news story that within a matter of nine seconds, we're on the edge of tears of you know in just in just listening to it's in that place right that i work so we're not living in that place we're responding we're just to responding we're just yeah. we're here we're actually here which i believe is also a compelling truth sure you know it's it's a truth of the present and being present and the fruitfulness of that so since you're also on american gods with pablo schreiber did he have any advice when he found out you were working with Warren Light? Did he? <laughs> uh, no advice. Like to be honest, he was one of the first people that I reached out to, and because uh, they did lights out together, they as, did as well as a lot of SVU. Yeah, yeah, they did a nice run here on SVU as well. And I was more reaching out to Pablo just to kind of just be like, "Hey, it looks like uh, Warren and this gang has game." Yeah, am I wrong? And I mean, without hesitation, he was like, no, Warren's fantastic. And, uh, you know, Pablo doesn't mince words, you know, so he's kind (laughs) of, and I love that. He's, you know, he's kind of his yes is yes and no is no. And if he says something's good, he really believes it's good. If he thinks it's crap, it's, he thinks it's crap, you know? So it was a big vote of confidence for sure. Jamor Barnes, this is a great episode, great performance. And thanks for coming on the squad room. Yeah. Thank you for having me again, Anthony. Sean Cockley and Cheryl L. Davis were given the task to write an episode that was centered around Chief Garland. To say they rose to the occasion is an understatement. We sat down and discussed this process with them. We are here on the squad room and we're talking about Garland's baptism by fire. And we are here with the writers of that episode, Cheryl L. Davis and Sean Cockley. Thank you for coming on to the squad room. Thanks so much for having us. Absolutely. Let's get into where the idea for the story came from and how it developed. Well, it was kind of inspired by the fact that we notice in our culture today, both political and social and cultural figures who have had great import to people at a personal level are being brought down because they've been found to abuse their power. But nonetheless, they still have that cultural and political impact. These people who may have espoused beliefs that inspired you, who have created works of art that have touched your soul, are still wrongdoers. And it's sometimes you have difficulty separating the work, the value of what they've done, and the wrong they've done. And what we wanted to address here was how does an individual deal with that? And we dealt with it through the POV of Christian Garland. How does he deal with that kind of issue when it confronts him on a personal level? And why did you select Christian Garland as our character who would be struggling with that? Well, once we decided to go down the route of having it be a minister, who had done this and knowing of Garland's ministerial background, so to speak. I believe he has a degree in ministry or a degree in religion from Yale. It made sense to have him as somebody to whom his religion is a core of his identity, to have him struggle with that issue. So we start at a party at Garland's house, which seems to be a very nice affair, no Mm -hmm. phones. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to Kelly about it. And then, of course, Rollins and Creasy come in and ruin things with this information that they have. What were you trying to set up there, being in Garland's home and live meeting 
Uh, just the different things, where, what was happening in your mind? Well, we wanted to see the world in which Garland lives. We wanted to set up as happy and as welcoming and warm a community as we possibly could and to show that the reverend was an integral part of this community so that when he falls, when the community is shattered, we get to see the impact that that has on Garland and what he loses and what the reverend has fractured. Back to our gang, Rollins and Carisi in the teaser, what's happening there exactly? Well, uh, thematically, we're setting up a real contrast between this warm and lovely party and the grunge and the dirt of the special frauds unit that they're slogging through. And they we're setting up a little dynamic between them and also what special frauds is doing, what's happening down there is going to end up bringing down the world that we've just seen. And personally, of course, yeah. Carisi is checking in on her, you mm-hmm. know, like as he does and as we like to see him do. Yeah. And then... Edgar and Olivia, they seem to have a moment. Seem act- to. <laughs> what? They seem very to. much have a moment. <laughs> well, okay. They have a moment, which I was very happy about, which of course came crashing down for poor, poor Liv. But yes. um, how does it feel to write something like, and then take it away? Do you feel bad when you create a scenario like that? I always think about that for the writers. Like, here's some fun. No, you're not having it. So. <laughs> I think it's always fun as a writer to create drama and to create a situation where somebody has a desire and then it gets thwarted and you just kind of see how they react to it. But also, Edgar didn't die. I mean, Edgar is still out there in, on the legal horizon. That's good. Uh, it's good to hear you say that. Yeah, <laughs> and, he did not die. <laughs> he did not. And I think we, we also, like, we never want to, like, explicitly tease mm, yeah. the fans either in terms yeah. of, and especially in terms of Olivia's love life that yeah. they have followed through some dark times mm, over the past right. 20 years. Mm-hmm. But having said that, you know, work work romances are always going to be complicated, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's just not the ideal situation for her to be meeting someone in. Mm-hmm. But... She's a single mom. Where else is she going to meet meet someone? So Mm -hmm. I I think it gives her hope. I like to think it gives her a little hope. Okay, (laughs) so that's good to know because I was taking it at the end that it was a shot. So I'm glad that there might be some indication of something. You know more than I do. No, no, no. no, no, no. I'm going to just like make that real vague. (laughs) Or hope that she may meet someone. You know, Uh, it may not be Edgar, but and someone open a little bit. Yeah, it was a nice moment, I think, for us to see Mm -hmm. for her. So I mean, gosh, it's so nice to see her get a real compliment, you know? Like, just like the... Her face just like lit up, know, like, like, and it's just, it's just Benson's so nice to happy. see that. Yeah. Exactly, it's so nice to see Benson in a light, yeah. uh, nice situation, fun. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I agree. As we move into our main story, we have this situation where Garland now receives this information when she's having trouble believing. And Lamai prevents Garland from making a call that probably would have been a big mistake. And I think that's a key moment in the episode. And he tells Liv that. And I was wondering what you guys were trying to put forward with that piece of information. Why does he tell her? Well, it's interesting from Garland's point of view because he is a strategic, cautious personality for him to have that impulse to reach out in a situation where we know that would be wrong procedurally and wrong, uh, that he he was about to reach out, but his wife stopped him. And that he feels close enough to live that he can reveal that to her. I mean, he's invited to his home. He's started to know her better. He feels that he can trust her with this bit of information, this moment that he had. And he said, I drew it back, but now she knows what had happened. 
So two things are happening there. The moment that he's having is an indication that this has really rattled him because he's doing something he would never do yeah. or he's going to make the call. At least he's thinking of doing something right. he'd never do. And then the fact that he tells Benson that mm-hmm. helps us to see he's starting to trust her as far as pushing story forward. I think so. I yeah. think we're showing a, a deepening of their relationship. And another key scene I really liked was the chess scene. If you guys could expand on that and why you chose a chess game for that setting. Well, chess is just such a wonderful metaphor for this strategy and the way this world happens. But also the fact that we're dealing with the protecting the king and the importance of the king in, in this situation, where the reverend can compare himself to the king. And we can have also set up a social ritual between Garland and the reverend so that we know that they've got this ongoing relationship. It's not just church on Sunday. It's not just dinners. It's, le- it's a legitimate social relationship. This, they enjoy spending time together. And this is what they choose to do. So these are two instances where you clearly want to indicate that Garland has relationships with the nature of his relationship with Benson, the nature of his relationship with his wife, and the reverend. So we're like, this is we're learning about Garland in this episode. Was that something you were instructed to do with this episode? Like, we need to learn more about Garland. Is that a Warren and Julie thing, or that's just the writing? I mean, I think very early on, it was decided that this is Garland's episode. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's not quite so clear on other episodes, but for every episode, we really have an idea of whose episode this is, whose perspective is going to be most prevalent throughout the episode. But because we've never met Garland before in these kind of scenarios, I think you really, that's just so clear. It's like, wow, and now we're meeting his wife. Wow, now we're meeting his reverend. And all that new information is very exciting. And I think also Warren mentioned on the podcast before, But the placement of finding out this information is very important in terms of we've seen Garland enough that we have an idea of who he is. So now it's exciting to really delve into those details. It's not coming too soon when we don't know who he is. And it's not coming too late where it's we should have found out these things by now. Right. Yeah. The final scene between Garland and the Reverend, it doesn't seem like the Reverend has learned or is feeling any sense of, uh, I don't know, remorse or what is happening with him at the end. He's just, it's just anger, right? He's still completely denying, 100% denying, Mm -hmm. um, which happens in the real world. People who refuse to acknowledge that they have committed wrongs. They have been victimized in some way. It's not my fault. It's the fault of the woman. It's the fault of this person. It's the fault of the system. It has nothing to do with I per- what does, I have done. Does he believe that or is he telling people that? I think at this point he still believes that. Uh, later on he may come to acknowledge some guilt on his own. But at this point he's very sincere in his belief that he has done nothing wrong. Yeah. Well, this is a fantastic episode, and thank you so much for coming on the Squad Room and talking about it. Cheryl, it's nice to meet you. Very First nice time to meet on. You too. Sharon, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Longtime casting directors Jonathan Strauss and Philip Huffman face many challenges working on SVU, but the biggest has to be lack of time. We discuss how they make it all happen week after week. I'm here on the squad room with Jonathan Strauss and Philip Huffman. They're casting directors for the show. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having us. And if you guys could give me just some basic background of how you became part of the Dick Wolf universe and 
how you got involved with Law and Order and all his shows and stuff, and, um, when, and when that happened. Well, uh, I produce, uh, co-produce, and been casting the show for 17 years on the casting side, the end of season four. So I came on the sort of the first five episodes of season five. Long story short, I started mostly casting uh, independent film and studio movies. And at the time, a producer that I had worked with on a film called Pollock, which was... Oh, that's a good movie. Uh, yeah. yeah um, Fred Berner, who produced that film, was in the Dick Wolf camp working on it. I believe he was either Law & Order or Criminal Intent at the time. No, it must have been Law & Order. When I caught wind through an agent on the acting side that the casting director on Law & Order SVU was departing the show at the end of season four... And so I actually uh, reached out to Fred Berner, who I knew from working on Pollock, and asked him if there was a way to get my throw my hat in the ring. And they were meeting with you know many casting directors at the time. I got an interview, flew out to L.A. and met with the team. Uh, Neil Bear and uh, Ted Koch, if Neil Bear was showrunning at the time, and uh, we all just sort of hit it off and. They ended up calling me, and uh, that's sort of how I got my foot in the door in Wolf Entertainment. And yeah. So when Jonathan left his job working on films we, with the casting director, Todd Thaler, the spot opened up at Todd Thaler's office as an assistant. And this was, you know, probably 2004, 2005, something like that. And then, so I interviewed with Todd got the job and worked with him on everything from big budget films to indie films to commercials, everything but theater, student films, the whole nine. And then when that started to wind down, the work kind of slowed down a bit. I also heard from an agent that there was an associate position opening up at SVU. So I jumped on that, came in, interviewed with Jonathan. Um, I remember I actually asked if I got the job in the interview, which I going back, <laughs> I still like look back, I'm like, what are you doing? Um, but so anyway, the interview went well, and it helped that we had both worked for the same guy, Todd Thaler. So we had already like a language, you know, anything from our um, session sheets, which is a list of actors coming into audition. It was just formatted the same way to our deal memos, which explains the finer points of the deals. Uh, everything was the same format just to, you know, Todd would always work um, just with himself, running the camera himself, auditioning with the actors, which Jonathan did and which I do now. So everything like that, just kind of we had a, a short shorthand already. Uh, so I came in in 2007, uh, end of season nine, and then we weathered, uh, you know, a writer's strike. Uh, and then a few years uh, went by and Jonathan was gracious enough to start sharing credit. Um, so then bumped me up to casting director. And I don't know how many years it's been since then, but now we've just been kind of rolling along. You know, just some insight. You know, Todd Thaler is a fantastic casting director, and his roots were in independent film. He actually started in extras casting from the Woody Allen days all the way through Mighty Aphrodite. And then he sort of transitioned into independent film, you know, the likes of Natalie Portman in The Professional and working with James Mangold and John Turturro and a lot of great actor-directors. But I cut my teeth with him. And there's a certain sensibility that he sort of instilled in me, and I think similarly in Phil, mm -hmm. and that was an immediate... I remember when Phil and I first met, and we started talking about The Wire, and Phil knew almost every sort of detail about that show at the time. Right. And, yeah. and we were sort of, uh, you know, and it was an immediate kinship because we sort of had a similar artistic sort of sensibility. And I think when you're casting, it's important to feel like if your tastes are in line and if not, that you're filling gaps. Because um, it's great when you can have, you know, assemble a team casting where different knowledge of talent, per se, uh, fills in 
your weaknesses and your strengths can complement so that your office is kind of like, if you look at it as a sports team, um, that everyone sort of complements each other and that you're not always duplicating your skill set. In our case, I think at the time it was. Yeah, it was, and then it was, it was. And then we went and try and hire every actor on the wire that we could. Yeah. <laughs> and pretty successfully, <laughs> yeah. I, I will yeah, say. I can name a few. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. There was a while that there's certain shows where the audience, I think, started to catch on. It was the Wire Lost, <laughs> right. Friday Night Lights. Shame, shameless Friday Night Lights. <laughs> right, Some right. of our favorites. Yeah. And the actors that cross over between our worlds. And I think the audience, especially when social media became more sure. prevalent started to catch on to that. It was sort of a, a fun little inside <laughs> Easter egg hunt. That, you can tell what we're fans of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> coming from independent film, a picture like Pollock or those types of films, then coming to this show, even though you're doing the same job, it has to be extremely different, right? Yes. Yeah, well, you have pretty much the same amount of characters sometimes and only eight days to find them on an episodic television <laughs> show as opposed to a film. You can have a few months and you can really take your time and see a lot of people as many as you can for those roles. And it's a different type of... Yeah, I think that the speed is the most jarring initial aspect. Uh, like Phil saying, you could have 10, 15, 20 weeks on a studio picture uh, for the pre-production component of a film and eight days, or in our case, seven days, to cast an episode of 15 to 45 characters. For those listening, when we say seven, eight-day prep, that means you get a script on day one. Um, you're concepting the script, discussing all the components of what will make that episode uh, from page to screen. Um, uh, and in our case, on the casting side, the characters, what makes them tick, uh, what are some of their characteristics, their ages and demographics. And then uh, spending the next two to three days prepping those characters so that you can uh, bring in the talent for director on day four. Mm of an eight-day or seven-day cycle. And so you really need to have that episode cast ostensibly by day four. So you have four days to cast, let's say, 40 roles, and then three days to make the deals for those actors that you decide you want to hire, um, get them to wardrobe, and start the whole process all over again. So that process alone is yeah. very... It doesn't uh, seem you, possible, you know, honestly. <laughs> I always think that every episode, but you know, by day four at the end of your session, generally, knock on wood, we're pretty well cast, and anything we didn't find, we can find you know, the next day or so. But yeah, you yeah. don't think it's possible. So I was just privy to something before this interview where, and we don't have to specifically say what it was, but there was a bit of a crisis where I was in a room with both of you and Warren and Julie, and you guys were like, we got to find somebody for this part. And it's a big part in the story. Does that happen often? Um, you know, hopefully not. You know, hopefully we do have our main guest star, you know, locked in by maybe day five or so. But, you know, it's episodic television and it's also SVU being what it is and the, the subject matter, you know, it does turn some people off to certain characters. But there's always an actor. There's always someone that wants to do it, whether they come in on day seven or, you know, day four. We're happy to have them and they almost always do a great job, you know. Yeah, I like to say we have steel in our veins. Uh, I mean, <laughs> no, no one seemed no one seemed remotely panicked. No, so. uh, you know, it, it, it might seem we have you know this the lead of our show starts shooting in two days, and that might throw many people into a panic. But for us, that's thirty percent of our prep. Right, and, and, <laughs> and it start, right. might start you know in two days, but you know if the actor's coming from out of town, then we have to fly them out, and then you know we always need fittings the day before. So it's really like. You know, they got to get on a plane tomorrow, kind of thing. Right. Um, so people, people say, "How do you do it 
so quickly, and we say, well, we've been doing it for 20 years so that we can do it so quickly. Right. <laughs> but, but I mean, in, in that conversation, there were certain names brought up that everyone was like, he'll come. You know, you have the relationships are there. Is that, yeah, that's you part have a of sense what, of, you know, after doing it this long, of actors who, you know, yeah, we know certain people at this late hour are of a certain status that they won't turn it around that quickly. But then there are certain people who are and they want to work and they and sometimes agents call and let us know, hey, this person is looking for something. And then we're fairly confident. But then again, you never know because we've also been told that people want to work and then we get them an offer and then they pass. So, One of the great things about Warren is he's his knowledge of actors is you know so rich as well. So we're constantly batting about names and we don't necessarily have to show him reels on certain people. He just knows them, and yeah, it's it's really unusual to have a showrunner like Warren, who's so whose depth of knowledge is so rich, and not just areas, not as a just, just as a writer, but whether it's locations, acting. When he sort of is concepting and understanding a story, he thinks of every aspect of the storytelling and has deep knowledge on it. And so, it really can help bring out the best in you. I think. In season 21, so he returns, and we have two new characters this year, Kat and Chief Garland. Maybe walk us through the process of them coming on and how that happened. In this case, we had a luxury that we don't often have, and I call it a luxury because it was a bit of time. <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is I started speaking with Warren over the summer hiatus in Outlook for the season 21 and some things that we thought might sort of continue to elevate the show and make it exciting and make it feel fresh in season 21. And, and Warren felt very strongly about bringing in some new characters, diversifying the cast uh, to help inform the characters that we already have. And out of that, I think the one character for sure that he knew he wanted was a new young yeah. detective who would start as a undercover and sort of be introduced into the squad. And so it allowed us to get a jump on that outside of our production cycle, which was very helpful because it almost, in a sense, allowed it to feel like a film where you might be able to probe different avenues for talent than a production cycle of television would allow. So instead of four days, we had several weeks. So you could really sort of look at talent all over the country in ways more thoroughly than you might during an episode of television um, and internationally, because if we found talent outside of the country, we would have time to get them paperwork and visas, which might not be an option for us with the time. And Jamie Gray Hyder is someone that I met during her time on True Blood, I believe. Uh, she was doing an arc on True Blood, and I had met with her when she was in, in New York at some point, and we hit it off, and she just had youthful energy, she had strength, and I was immediately sort of struck with her. And when this role came up, she was one of a handful of actors that I think rose very quickly to the top in terms of our hope that she would spark, and, and she did. I mean, she auditioned out of town. I believe she was in L.A. at the time. And sometimes when lightning strikes, you know it pretty quickly. Yeah. And I think we sent, you know, a handful of actors for Warren to look at. And it wasn't much of a contest after I think everyone laid their eyes on her. Right. And like when you're casting for a role that with the potential to be a series regular, it's a whole different type of spotlight on the role. You look at it a lot more intensely and focus on, whereas if you're doing, you know, a one episode guest star, you get a good sense, you know, just by the audition. But with the series regulars, you really, you know, you go into a test. You don't take it very lightly because they're going to have to carry a lot on the show, too. So when she came in for episode one, and we didn't know the status of her, everybody already knew that she was going to be series regular or was one a test in a way? Not exactly. 
we were hopeful. And so what we do is we structured a deal, what we call it, it's sort of a recurring guest star with an option, right. is what we would call it yeah. in the industry. And what it basically allows us to do in our case on the production side is to have an actor, in this case, Jamie, guest star on the show. And if she enjoys herself and if everything goes as planned, we have an option for her services to continue as a series regular. And we knew pretty quickly, even well before, that option is usually by a certain episode number or date within a season. And we knew pretty quickly once she showed up on screen and I'm going to make you a star. I think it was pretty evident when everyone saw her dailies that we were going to exercise her option well before the public was made aware of it. <laughs> and so now in New York, you guys all come to an agreement. Then it obviously has to go to LA and everybody there has to sign off, not for guest stars, right? Right. But for a series regular. Would... Yeah, Dick Wolf is involved of all aspects of the show and he's very engaged. And this was certainly one of those roles that he had his eye on very closely. And luckily, when he saw her work uh, and her dailies, as we all did, um, he was in agreement that we had found our new series regular. And did you know Demore also before? Yeah, Demore, you know, has been one of those actors who's been on our list for a while, um, always working. And then, you know, we've been trying to find spots for him here and there. Whenever we could. You know, Phil and I cast a show together also in the Dick Wolf universe in the Chicago Justice, because I also cast Fire PD Med. And there was one show, Justice, that didn't make it out of season one. But Damore played an attorney on that show and just blew us all away. And so we've just always been a fan of his. And when an opportunity came up to potentially have him on SVU, it was kind of kismet. Yeah, and a different type of chief than uh, we've had in the past. Yes. So it was also nice to bring him in. So when you bring in someone like Peter Gallagher mm -hmm. prior, who's known, that's a different process, right, than a Damore. That's just like we could get Peter Gallagher and you talk to him and— or do you have to go through everything as well? Um, there's a couple different ways that we attack uh, casting an episode. From the ground up, there's the audition process, uh, as we touched on a little bit earlier. And then there's also, at some point in an actor's career, they get a certain pedigree uh, where they're, depending on what the project is and the commitment, they may no longer be required or expect to audition. And Peter Gallagher has certainly, I think, right. earned the right <laughs> in most respects to let his work speak for itself. And he has a body of work that you can turn to to say, what do we want in this character, and here is 40 years of work to sift through to determine whether he can lend some authenticity to the role. And so I think in Peter Gallagher's case, that certainly, yeah, uh, was, so you, you you know, we offered him a, the role on SVU at the time based on our, uh, everyone's knowledge. And, of uh, and so that's a very different type of casting process than the audition sort of uh Process. Was there ever a thought for the Chief Garland to go with someone who was more in that category of actor? Or were you looking for a new more of a new face? I think we were looking for someone, yeah, new, fresh face. Yeah, um, and I think we didn't want it to feel like a carbon copy. Right. And Peter was so sort of, uh, you he's know. himself, like you're right. not going to replace him with another yeah, we weren't looking, of his type. Yeah, we weren't looking to replace Peter Gallagher with a Peter Gallagher doppelganger. There's only one Peter Gallagher. Yeah. And he brought some, you know, and, and a fan favorite. And so I think Warren really wanted to bring something new and different to that role than a quiet intellect, someone maybe a little bit more of... Uh, speak softly, carry a big stick. And that's where Damore started to sort of percolate in our minds, I think. Because he yeah. certainly, if you see his performance, it's a simmering. Yeah. Uh, it's a very different way to show power, I think, and authority. Probably one of the biggest challenges ever on the show was Chris Maloney leaving. You didn't replace, like, 
Again, was that the thinking of bringing in new faces, or did you ever consider bringing in a more established person? For I don't think, in, in as a general rule, we're ever looking to replace right. actors or characters. We're always looking to bring in new stories and tell new stories, not repeat stories or repeat characters. So replacing Chris would be a fool's errand, right. and I don't think that was ever anyone's intention. But I think SVU needed new detectives, and that was a requirement. Yeah. <laughs> and it's nice that you say you bring in new detectives for new stories. Like Kelly's character has brought in a whole new side of things with her family side. You know, her sister, we've done her sister, her, her mother. mother. And then, you know, Peter Scandavino's character coming in, you know, that added a whole nother angle. And, and helps sort of inform the characters that you have and how they relate to each other, I think. I guess the better way to look at it is, is this is an opportunity to do something different rather than, oh, we have a hole here that we need to... Yeah, because then you get stuck in that hole worrying about, you know, <laughs> trying to fill that hole as opposed right. to, hey, let's go over here someplace else and start something new. Well, Jonathan and Philip, thank you. I know you have a lot of work to go do right now. Yep. So <laughs> thanks for coming on Squad thanks, Room thanks and, for having yeah, and talking you. all about this. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Last week, we lost a beloved member of the SVU family when costumer Josh Walwork passed away due to complications from the coronavirus. We would like to dedicate this episode of the Squad Room to his memory. And as Mariska Hargitay said, the SVU corridor will never be the same. We will all miss you, Josh. And please remember to subscribe to The Squad Room wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a thing. We love hearing from you. We want to hear from you. Follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and at Wolf Entertainment and on Twitter at NBCSVU and at Wolf Ent. Squad Room is hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman. It is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light. This episode was recorded by Joe Tisdall, Kate Levitt, and Jessica Damari. Post-production was handled by James Asciutto, and we'd like to send a big thank you to Victoria Pollock. As always, The Squad Room is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment, and we'll be back in two weeks. <laughs>